WTBN Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Now, I don't understand how human responsibility and divine sovereignty work together. Nobody understands that. That's God's business, so don't try to reconcile those things, but don't weaken the view of what Scripture says God is like, totally sovereign. See Christ for the supreme and sovereign one that He really is, and that's how the Lord wants you to see Him, because that's the way He really is, and that's how Jesus said believers are to see Him. Do you see Jesus as the exalted one? He is the one who can say about everything in all of creation, this is mine. Every atom, every molecule, every person is his to do with as he pleases. I am sure glad that even though he didn't need to, and I didn't deserve it, he was pleased to pay the price for my sins. So now I am doubly his, made by him and redeemed by him. I hope you are too. It's good that you could join us today for Verse by Verse. These daily Bible classes are the radio adaptations of Pastor Steve Kreloff's messages at Lakeside Community Chapel. Lakeside is located in Clearwater, Florida, and has been Pastor Steve's home now for over 27 years. Verse by Verse is the realization of a vision to reach a wider audience with Pastor Steve's practical scripture lessons. In the early 11th century, a Danish king named Canute ruled England. He grew tired of his followers heaping extravagant praises on him and declaring his power and invincibility. So Canute had his servants place his chair on the beach, and then he sat on his throne, loudly commanding the waves not to approach him and wet his feet. Of course, the tide came in anyway. It is said that from that day on, Canute did not wear a crown. There was only one person who can command the waves, and as the story goes, Canute hung his crown on the head of a statue of that person hanging from the cross. Today we will be wrapping up Pastor Steve's message from Matthew chapter 8 about a Roman soldier who recognized the unlimited authority that Jesus wielded, a man whose faith in Christ exceeded that of everyone Jesus had encountered. Now Jesus was so impressed with this man's insight and understanding of him based on on what he spoke concerning authority, that he acknowledged that this Gentile man who had, who had no theological training, was not raised in a Jewish home where the scriptures would have been taught. This man had greater faith than any Jewish person, Jesus said, they had come across in Israel. So what exactly was it about this man's faith that impressed Jesus? That's the critical thing, because whatever this man had, that's what we want. Watch this. It wasn't merely that the man believed that Jesus could heal his, his servant from a distance without entering his home. That, that wasn't it, really. It was that he believed that Jesus had absolute, unlimited authority to command whatever he wanted done, and it would be done. There's no question about it. In other words, he believed that Jesus Christ was God Almighty, the King, who could do whatever he wanted to do, and if he wanted to heal a servant, all he needed to do was give the commanding word of healing. Now, I, I am convinced that the primary reason that Matthew recorded this miracle in his gospel account was because this man's faith affirmed exactly what Matthew wanted all of his readers to know from the beginning to the end of his gospel, that Jesus Christ 
was not only the Messiah, but that Jesus Christ was the authoritative king, the one with unlimited clout, the one with unlimited power over diseases, demons, and, and nature. In other words, this, this man realized that Jesus was God and that everything, therefore, was under his sovereign control and authority. And that's why Jesus praised him. This man got it. He really got it because even though he had many Jewish followers, not one of them up to this point grasped the fact that Jesus could do whatever he chose to do. In fact, let me show you what I mean. In Matthew chapter 8, just a few verses later, starting at verse 23, we're, we're told this story. When he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Notice this, you men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, though his disciples, Jewish disciples here, certainly had faith in him as the Messiah, their faith was small. Their faith was little. All they knew was that he was the Messiah but they really didn't believe that, that he had full authority over everything because they said, what kind of a man is this? That he wakes up and commands the sea, commands the winds to stop, and, and it's calm? Who are we with? See, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. See, folks, the kind of faith that Christ wants us to have in him is a faith that trusts him as supreme and sovereign the one who is over and in control of all the events of life, the one who before him there are no accidents. There may be things that look like accidents, but if God is sovereign, there are no accidents. Totally sovereign. It is the kind of faith that expresses itself the way the prophet Jeremiah expressed himself in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, when he said, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing. Now, of course, all of us who know Christ would acknowledge that. We would say, yes, we would verbally acknowledge that Jesus is the sovereign Lord with unlimited authority and power. But I've got to tell you, we don't all believe that. We may say that, but we don't all believe that. And the reason I say that, that many of us don't really believe that he, that he is the sovereign Lord, is because there are many who believe, many Christians who believe that that man's will can frustrate and overcome the sovereign purposes of God. There are many Christians who believe that. They believe and they act and they live their lives as if man's free will can overcome and frustrate and thwart the sovereign purposes of God. And so somehow God's purposes are at the mercy of man's free will, meaning that if a man decides to rebel against God's plan, then God's plan is in jeopardy of being carried out. Now, that is the theology of many Christians. But Scripture emphatically and dogmatically denies that. Scripture dogmatically teaches that God is absolutely sovereign and that he has full and complete authority over everything and anything, including man's rebellion. Now, man is certainly responsible. God hasn't made us as robots, but God is so sovereign that he overcomes man's rebellion. That's what it means in Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for good 
to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. All things are not good, but God is so sovereign that all things are used by him to work together for good. Listen to what God says about his own sovereignty in Isaiah 46.10. You might want to write down this reference, Isaiah 46.10. It's a wonderful verse. In fact, I think it starts in verse 9. I am God, and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purposes will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Did you get that? God says, my purposes will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He's not saying that some of my good pleasure will be accomplished, you know, because man might get in the way of all of it. Man can't get in the way. God is that sovereign. And you may say, but man rebels and and does what he wants. But listen, Psalm 76 verse 10 says that God even makes the wrath of man to praise him. He certainly did this in the... uh, the wickedness of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ. And yet God didn't force Judas to do that, but God didn't prevent it either. And out of that, we have the cross of our Lord. He used the wrath of Judas to give praise. And let me give you another illustration. I think this is a significant illustration. If you want to see an illustration in Scripture of God overruling man's rebellion then go no further than to read the book of Jonah. You remember the story. Jonah was a rebellious prophet who, instead of obeying God, who told them to go to Nineveh to preach repentance to the wicked Assyrians, Jonah said no. He pitted his will against God's will by heading in the opposite direction, just trying to avoid, at all costs, God's will. But God overruled, and that's the point. God overruled this man's rebellion and his disobedience by, by, I mean, you read the story, and it's really rather humorous. He sends this horrific storm at sea. He uses pagan sailors in Jonah's life, and he even sends a great fish who preserves Jonah from drowning by swallowing him. You understand that that was God's sovereign preservation of this prophet. I mean, if the fish doesn't come along, the man drowns in the Mediterranean, but he's preserved there later and by the way, the greatest miracle of this, um, of this story, I think, is not the, uh, the, the Jonah being swallowed by the fish, but how the, the fish could uh, handle that without vomiting this prophet out quickly. But later, he does vomit him out. He vomits the prophet out somewhere near Nineveh, where Jonah, who's by this time is repented in the belly of the fish, Jonah goes and preaches to the Assyrians. And so in the end, even though Jonah didn't like the results, and uh, that's all part of it, he didn't want them repenting, he did obey God reluctantly, but he obeyed God by preaching to the Assyrians, and the Assyrians did repent at the preaching of Jonah. So listen, God accomplished his plan all along. His will did triumph over Jonah's disobedience and Jonah's will. And, and why? Because God is totally sovereign, and therefore his authority is unlimited. Listen, no one and no set of circumstances can prevent his decreed will from taking place. That's precisely what the centurion recognized in Jesus as God, the exalted one. This man saw that, that all Jesus had to do was say a word because he, his word was authoritative over everything, all the forces of nature, the forces of demons, the forces of, of disease, 
All he had to do was speak a word and the slave would be healed. His word was supreme. His word was sovereign. It was the command of the universe. Nothing more powerful. Now, folks, one reason that this incident is is recorded for us in Scripture is for us to see that this is the kind of faith Christ wants all of us to have. All of us to have this. To see him for, for who he really is. Vast and immense and not put God in a little box because it's this faith that is based upon the truth of who Christ really is. This is faith that sees Christ as sovereign over all the events of life, the storms of life, the illnesses that we have, the the, the foreign affairs going on in the world, current events, difficult circumstances, personal trials, people conflicts, all of that and on and on. There are no accidents in light of our sovereign God. Now, is this the view that you have of God? Because many Christians don't. And I know that they don't because if they did, they wouldn't worry. They wouldn't worry and they wouldn't doubt and they wouldn't be filled with anxiety and they wouldn't be fearful and they wouldn't be stressed out about what tomorrow brings. If we really believe that Christ is sovereign, we'd be very restful in him. Those believers who who live as if Christ's power is limited can be overruled by man's will, not, not only do we sin against the Lord by having a faulty and a, and a very low view of him? But we live with so many unnecessary worries, fears, and doubts. It's not necessary. It's not the way God wants us to live. If you really believe what Jeremiah said, there is nothing too difficult for you. And you'll rest in him. You'll not be worrisome. See, that's why the disciples were worried. I mean, it's really a humorous, a humorous uh, picture here. The Lord is sleeping in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. There's no worries he has, but they're fearful. Why are they fearful? Because they don't even recognize the one with them is sovereign. They don't know that. They just see him as the Messiah. And that's the way many of us are. We see Christ only as our Savior. We do not see him as Lord of the universe. Now, I don't understand how human responsibility and divine sovereignty work together. Nobody understands that. That's God's business. So don't try to reconcile those things, but, but don't weaken the view of what scripture says God is like, totally sovereign. See Christ for the supreme and sovereign one that he, that he really is. And that's how the Lord wants you to see him because that's the way he really is. And that's how Jesus said believers are to see him. In fact, that's why he goes on to say many Gentiles will see him just this way. He's speaking of the future church age where there'll be many Gentile believers. Notice verses 11 through 12. He said, I, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. And in that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. With these words, Christ gives a very sobering glimpse into the future. When many Gentiles from east and west, meaning east and west of Israel, will believe on him the way the centurion believed on him. They'll see him as the exalted one. They'll see him as, as Lord and Savior. And so they will join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the founders and patriarchs of the Jewish nation. They'll join them at the great messianic feast in the kingdom, the banquet in the kingdom. But sadly, Jesus said, many Jewish people won't be there. The sons of the kingdom is just another way of saying Jewish people, though they are the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and due to their privileged heritage, they were expecting to join their patriarchs in the kingdom. Jesus said that God will not allow them 
in. Now, he doesn't mean all Jewish people, certainly. He means many who expect to be there will not be there. God will not allow them in, but will cast them, he said, into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it's very interesting. What the Lord said had to be startling to the Jewish crowd following him because what he said was absolutely opposite of what the rabbis taught the people of that day. They taught, the rabbis taught that all Jewish people would be present in the kingdom. Why? By virtue of the fact that they're Jewish, by virtue of their physical ties to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they taught that uh, what a glorious day that will be because they said there'll be no Gentiles in the kingdom. They said no Gentiles would be in the kingdom. They'd all be absent from the kingdom because of their sinful condition. Just Jewish people and no Gentiles. But Jesus taught completely opposite that. Jesus taught that entrance into his kingdom wasn't based on physical ancestry or even religious affiliation, but rather on saving faith in him alone. And those people who trust in themselves, whether they be Jewish or Gentiles, will be excluded from his kingdom and they will sadly, but truthfully, be, ex- be, be cast into the outer darkness of hell. That's what Christ is talking about, where he said they will suf- suffer forever the horrors of weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Now, I understand this is a tough truth to receive, but it must be received for the very reason that it is the truth. To deny it doesn't make it you know, untrue. It is true. No one gets into heaven based on anything other than than faith in Jesus Christ. And, and the issue, and oftentimes you'll see uh, television hosts try to pin a, a pastor or a theologian down by saying something like, so are you saying all that Jewish people won't get to heaven? The issue has nothing to do with whether you're Jewish or Gentile. The issue is only do you have faith in Jesus Christ as, as the one who died on the cross on behalf of, of sinners? That, that's the issue. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone, anyone, being Jewish or Gentile, should boast. And Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Like this Gentile centurion, we all need, regardless of our background, regardless of our ethnic background, religious background, we all need to believe that Jesus is the exalted king, the sovereign one of the universe who has unlimited authority. And Jesus, by the way, affirmed the greatness of the centurion's faith by actually healing the servant. We don't want to lose that and miss that in the story. Verse 13, and that's where it started with the servant. Whatever happened to him? Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment, in response to the centurion's faith, Jesus healed the man's servant. Now, we don't want to misunderstand this. Some have. This doesn't mean that the Lord heals everyone who has the faith to believe that he or she will be healed. That, that's a dangerous teaching that's not in the Bible. And there are some who have really um, put People who have serious illness in a terrible situation where they have blamed them. Well, if you only had enough faith, you'd be healed. Poor people are going through illness, and yet on top of that, now they give them uh, an unnecessary guilt trip. Well, you're not healed because you don't have faith. Uh, That's very cruel, and that's very wrong. I remind you that no one had greater faith in Christ than the Apostle Paul. I don't think anyone would question Paul's faith, But he wasn't healed of his thorn in the flesh. 
In 2 Corinthians, he said he prayed three times that the Lord would remove this thorn in the flesh. But instead, the Lord said, no, I'm not going to do that. But I am going to give you my grace, which is sufficient for your ailment. Not everyone gets, gets healed. And so this is not a universal principle of healing. This is not a promise to grab hold of that if your faith is just great enough, then, then you'll be healed. It is, though a demonstration of Christ's power and authority to do whatever he sovereignly chooses to do. And if he sovereignly chooses to heal you, then fine. But if not, then that's fine too. Whatever he sovereignly chooses to do. So what kind of faith do you have? Do you have little faith? He's your savior, but there's nothing much beyond that. You live as if he's very small. That's small faith. Or do you have great faith that, that sees the Lord as the exalted one, high and lifted up? the one who has no problem pulling everything together, sustaining the universe, sustaining us, no accidents with him, no, uh, no such thing as luck. You believe in God's sovereignty. Don't ever say to someone, good luck, or you're very fortunate. Uh, those are just inaccurate statements in light of God's sovereignty. Great faith comes by seeing the greatness of Christ. It isn't that you muster up with some kind of an emotional buzz faith Now I believe. No, it's that you see how great Christ is. The object of your faith is great. Then your faith will be great. Do you see yourself as sinfully unworthy of Christ? We all are. We all are. That's where it begins. But Christ did something for unworthy sinners that's far greater than physically healing anyone. There's so many people who are into physical healing, but the greatest miracle, the greatest thing that Christ did for unworthy sinners like us is that he died in the place of unworthy sinners. That's, that's more remarkable than any healing. More remarkable that, that Christ, the perfect son of God, would die for me, would die for you, would die in the place of sinners. And he gives eternal life to those who are unworthy of him, to those who repent of their sin, turn from their sin and turn to the Savior and trust him as Lord and Savior. If you'll trust him to be your savior, not only will he forgive you of all of your sins, that you know you're a sinner and you know you're undeserving of heaven. He'll forgive you of all of your sins, but he'll do something even beyond that. He will credit his righteousness to your eternal account with God. The Bible refers to that as imputed righteousness. And I I believe that Jerry Bridges went over that when uh, when he spoke here. That's imputed righteousness. He puts... The righteousness of Christ on the account credits our account with Christ's righteousness to those who believe. Do you have that? Because you can't get to heaven on your own righteousness, but only on Christ. Do consider, do you really know the Savior? Do you know him as Lord and sovereign one? If you're a believer, do you know him as the one who is absolutely over everything? Remarkable faith for a remarkable Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we need your help even to recognize your greatness and our need for your touch in our lives. Father, make us aware that you are the sovereign king of everything and you give us the grace to set aside our pride and ambition and submit to your lordship. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today for Verse by Verse and this concluding portion of our study on the Roman Centurion. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher for these daily Bible classes of the air. 
Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These radio adaptations of his messages are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries, a faith ministry supported by listeners like you. We are on the web at versebyverseradio.org. You'll find a variety of resources on the website, such as downloadable audio files of these radio classes and a free newsletter to which you might want to subscribe. You can call us at 727-441-1714 if you would like to order a CD or a cassette with this message on it. Leave your name and a phone number, and we will get back to you during regular office hours. That number again is 727-441-1714. Next time on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will begin a new series of messages, and I hope you can join us. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's Verse by Verse. W262CP.